Welcome to the eighth session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. This session is entitled Undiluted Grace, and I'll be covering several passages in Galatians. All right, Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to several churches because Galatia is not a city. It was a territory that included what is present-day Turkey. And these churches were a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. And he wrote this letter to come against a teaching that these men were trying to bring in to try to put the people back under law. And of all of Paul's letters, Galatians lays out the strongest case against any form of legalism. It's like a dissertation on pure grace. He even proclaimed a curse on anybody that would preach anything but grace. Anything that would come against the good news. And what is the good news? We've talked about it every time. If you tell me that God will forgive me of all my sins and call me righteous simply because I believe in Jesus Christ, that's good news. But if you tell me that I then need to follow a bunch of rules and regulations and perfectly obey the law, well, that's bad news because nobody's ever been able to do it. And Paul's main argument for pure grace is found in Galatians 2, 21. I decided that this was it. This is, this is my key verse in Galatians. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And that's why I love Paul, because he always brings it back to Christ and Him crucified. All right, we're going to start in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul wrote, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Turning away is a Greek word, metatithony, and it means to replace one thing with another. They were replacing grace with another gospel, which actually was no gospel at all. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Metastrepho is pervert, and it means to reverse or to change to the opposite. So if you put a little bit of law in with your grace, it's like putting poison in your water. It totally changes the composition of it. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema, be doomed to destruction. As we have said before, and now we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He actually pronounces a double curse on anybody that would preach anything but pure grace. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So part of being a bondservant for Christ is to preach the gospel without compromise, even if it costs you your reputation. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For it neither I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, Paul received the gospel straight from Jesus, straight from Jesus. And he actually called it my gospel in Romans and in 2 Timothy. So he goes on in Galatians 1 to write about his former life as, as a Pharisee and how he violently persecuted the church. And then in verse 15, one of my favorite verses, it says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, so 
Before he was even born, God had a plan for Paul. Even though he kicked against the goads, tried to go against God's will, God had a plan for him. And, and Paul says, and God called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach Jesus among the Gentiles. And we can say the same goes for us before the foundation of the world. God called us and chose us to reveal his son in us that we might reveal his son through us. After, see, he's talking about his Damascus Road experience in these verses. He's talking about when the light came on. And you can read about that in Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. And what he says is, after that experience where he encountered Jesus, he says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. I didn't go and consult human beings, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and I assumed to consult with Jesus and then returned again to Damascus. So there was this three-year period of Paul's life that we call his time in Arabia, where he was taught by the Lord himself. And then he, Paul goes on in Galatians to give this timeline of his travels. So after the three-year period, he goes to Jerusalem, he meets with Peter for 15 days, and then he travels for 14 years. He goes to all these churches, sharing the gospel with them. And then he returns to Jerusalem, and when he came back to Jerusalem on that trip, it was for a meeting that we call the Council at Jerusalem, where they hashed out this question that had been brought to Paul when he was in a, at his home base in Antioch. And we see it in, in Acts 15. And, he, and they explain these teachers, these false teachers had come in and they were teaching this. And in Acts 15, 1, it says, they were, this is what they were saying, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these false teachers were adding to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And this caused a great dissension. Paul and his partner Barnabas fought vehemently with these guys. And it was, just, it was such a big deal that the church sent them to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, to, to bring this issue there. And ultimately, this group of leaders wrote a letter and sent it to all the churches and refuted this doctrine. It was a heresy. At this Jerusalem council, Paul and Barnabas and Peter all shared stories of how they had seen these remarkable salvations and even signs and wonders among the Gentiles. And Peter stood up in the meeting because there were some on the council who were actually in agreement that the Gentiles need to come under the law and they needed to be circumcised and other things. And Peter stood up and I love what he said. In Acts 15, verse 9, he says, God made no distinction between us and the Gentiles, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? And he's saying, nobody could keep the law. Why are you trying to put it on the Gentiles? And I love verse 11. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, in a few minutes, when we get to the, about the middle of Galatians 2, I want you to remember Peter standing up so strongly for pure grace here because we're going to come to a place where even he was intimidated by these imposters on a different issue. All right, moving to Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says that these false brethren were secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So there was an agenda here to control the people. 
and it says they came in by stealth. And I love that, that Greek word there, perisokamai. We, it's only two places in the New Testament. We had it in Romans 5, 20, where it says the law entered that the offense might abound. The law came in alongside grace. Well, here it is translated, they came, they came in by stealth. Okay, so these men would slip in to the slip in the back door to infiltrate the meetings and try to enslave the people with law and Paul would have nothing to do with it. It says in verse 5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He was desperate that these people would remain free. And in verse 6 it says, but those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Now these imposters were intimidating. They were impressive. But once again, we see that Paul did not fear man. And I think there's a lesson in that for us. We need to be free of people's opinions of us if we're going to actually help people. All right, moving on to verse 11 in chapter 2. Paul writes about a public confrontation that he had with Peter. He says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. I mean, can you, the lingo here doesn't sound like grace, does it? But this is how fierce he was about pure grace. He says, before certain, for before certain men came from James, meaning they came from Jerusalem, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when these men came in, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So this same Peter who stood up so strongly against the false teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved, is now afraid to eat the shrimp and the bacon in front of these same guys. And then verse 13, this is the sad part. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So he's calling Peter a hypocrite. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So Peter caused division in the body because that's what legalism does. And we can apply this to all forms of legalism. We tend to think of just the, the old biddies in the, in, the, in the church, right, that are so legalistic. But legalism is everywhere. There's a cultural legalism. It's trying to take away our right to say things, you know. And so it's everywhere. And it always, it's a grace-hating spirit that always causes division. And Paul was very upset about it. And I think it's very... It's interesting and actually kind of incredible that Paul was the one to rebuke Peter because who is the one that walked with Jesus during his time on the earth? Was it Paul? No, it was Peter. Who was saved first? It was Peter. To whom did Jesus say, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, on this rock I will build my church? Peter. Who preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved? Peter. Who was saved later? Paul. Who persecuted the church? Paul. Paul rebuked Peter, the, the most prominent apostle, the oldest apostle in the church at the time, for compromising on pure grace and walking in hypocrisy. How could Paul be so brave and bold? I'll tell you how. He got it. He got it. He said of himself in Acts 26, that he used to think that he ought to do everything he could to oppose the very name of Jesus. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. He said in 1 
Corinthians 15, that he was the least of all the apostles. And Ephesians 4, the least of all believers. And then he says in 1 Timothy 1, that he was the chief of all sinners. Of all people, Paul knew what Jesus had done for him. And therefore, he could not compromise on the grace of God. I love Galatians chapter 2, 19 through 21 in the message. He wrote this. I love the paraphrase of it. He says, what actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a law man so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with Him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life that you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And I am not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. That's Galatians 2.21. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Why would Jesus need to die if we could do it on our own? All right, moving into chapter 3, we get Paul's greatest rebuke in the Scriptures. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Obey, that is a Greek word, pytho, which means persuaded to believe. In other words, who has cast an evil spell on you so that you no longer are persuaded to believe what is true? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What is the hearing of faith? Believe, right? And what did the disciples ask Jesus in John 6? He said, what, they said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And his answer, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So believe is the work. We receive the spirit by believing. What is receiving the spirit? We just read right over that. Think about what that means. And this made me think of when Jesus came through the walls after the resurrection and they were huddled up, right? They were afraid. And he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that reminded me when John wrote in John 1, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. See, God is a spirit, right? And so when we're born again, we're born of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So when Paul says, he asks the question, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's saying, how were you saved? How were you born again? How were you made righteous in the first place? Was it because you obeyed the Ten Commandments? Or was it because you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So the obvious is that they believed. 
But this is not just a mental ascent. This was a new birth. So we think about it. When somebody, and this is what they did, when somebody finally releases the, the burden of their guilt and shame at the foot of the cross, and they cry out to God for mercy and for forgiveness, that is what these Galatian believers had done. And you think about what it means. We've all come to this place where we turn to Jesus and we, we, He was clearly portrayed among us as crucified. We saw our sin in His body on the cross. We saw His blood washing our sin away. We saw Him take our sin into the grave and rise again without it and then give us His very life, which we received as a free gift. So that is what grace is. That's how we all began. That's how the Galatians be, began. And that's how we have to continue it for the rest of our lives by the Spirit and how, how tragic it would be to go back to self-righteousness, to an identity in the flesh and all of the condemnation and the shame that comes with that. So he, Paul says, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That's that word sarks again, self-effort. Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, you were persecuted for this. Are you going to cave in now? Therefore, he, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So does God supply the Spirit and work miracles because of what we do? Or is it just because we have simple faith and we believe? And he says, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's just a simple gospel that we don't need to complicate. So as Paul moves on, he continues in Galatians 3 and into Galatians 4, he explains how this gospel is not just something we believe. It's about who we are. We are heirs. And we are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And you think about it. Christ has already died. He has already risen. This means we are heirs now, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus in the spiritual sense. We are His heirs now. We need to act like it. So Paul contrasted what it means to be an heir, a son who inherits now versus a child who is not able yet to inherit. So he's saying that being under the law is like being a child. He has no privileges. He doesn't have inheritance. He has no control over his life. He is no different than a slave, Paul says. So when we go into chapter 4, there are two Greek words I want to tell you. One of them is huos, and it means son, a mature son who inherits. He's an heir inheriting now. And then Nepios is a child who cannot inherit now. He is unable to inherit. So in Galatians 4 verse 1, Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, Nepios, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards. Now that's an analogy to the law. See, the guardians and the stewards give you the rules and the regulations and they control your every movement. And he says, until the time appointed by the father. So until the child is ready to receive his inheritance, he is under the heavy hand of these stewards and these guardians. And as Paul had written in Galatians 3.24, he says, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
But once faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. We're not under the law. And he said in 1 Timothy 1, 9, he said, knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person. So back to the analogy of the child. A child, as long as he's a child, even if he's the richest kid in the kingdom, an heir apparent to the greatest estate, he is no more privileged than the servants. As long as he is a child, even if he's one day master of the whole thing, he cannot enjoy his position. He cannot drive the Rolls Royce. He cannot write a check like other inheritors do. He's just like a slave. So what is this talking about? It's talking about the change in being slaves under law, like a child, to being sons under grace. And in verse 3, he says, Even so, when we were children, when we were under the law, Nepios, unable to inherit, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. What does that mean? It's the Greek word stoikion. And in this, in this context, it means to be under the rules and the regulation with no say over the, the control or the conduct of your life. Just like children in elementary school. That's what being under the law is like. You have nothing within. You do not have the Spirit of God within to give you life and to give you understanding and wisdom. You are forced from the outside. It's behavior modification. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. You're just like a slave. It's that behavior modification. Because see, the law is for slaves. But grace is for sons who've had a heart transformation. We have a new heart with a new spirit on the inside, a new nature as a new creation. And so as sons, we live by the promptings of the Holy Spirit from the inside and not the letter from the outside. And how is this life lived? In a love relationship, right? With our Heavenly Father. We're sons. Verse 4, When the fullness of... Of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, His Huas, His heir, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Now that is one Greek word, huothesia. It comes from the root huas, the mature son who's ready to inherit. And it means that it is a son with the nature of his father. So, you know, it's, we use the word adoption, but it's actually stronger than that because we have the nature in our spirit, the nature of our father, his spiritual DNA. And because you are sons, huos, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, the spirit of Jesus, into your hearts. And just like Jesus, when we cry out to God, we can use the same terms of endearment. Abba, right? Daddy, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, huos. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And part of our inheritance is that union that we have and that freedom of intimacy that we have to talk directly to God. Are we free to call him Daddy? Are we comfortable in his presence? We're not slaves. You see, the spirit of a slave brings an ungodly fear that says you're not worthy to be in the presence of God. And there's no way to be comfortable in the presence of somebody when you feel, un you feel undeserving to be there. And if you fear someone, 
with an ungodly fear. It's just a matter of time that you're going to hate that person. And that's the tragedy of legalism. That's the tragedy of what we're dealing with, with this ungodly fear that many have put on people based on the lie that they're not worthy. And so you end up with a whole lot of people who hate who they perceive God to be. And that's why we got to tell a lost generation the truth about the God of grace and mercy. In Romans 8, Paul also talked about this spirit of sonship. He says, For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, huothesia, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Sonship is a matter of spirit. The spirit of sonship is the spirit of Jesus that has been given to us. It's in our hearts and it involves three things. Our sense of identity from our Heavenly Father. Our sense of acceptance from our Heavenly Father. And our sense of approval from our Heavenly Father. Isn't that what every son wants? Identity, acceptance, and approval. And so because we are joint heirs with Jesus, our Father also says to us, This is my son. That's your identity. Whom I love. That's his acceptance of you. With whom I'm well pleased. And that's his approval. Further down in Galatians 4, Paul continues this discussion of sonship by contrasting two sons. One is a son of promise under grace. The other is a son of the flesh under law. And he does this with the symbolism of these two famous ladies and their sons. Verse 21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman and the other by the free woman. Okay, so the bondwoman is the Egyptian slave girl, Sarah's Egyptian slave girl called Hagar. And then Sarah was Abraham's wife. We know the backstory that God had promised Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations, but the problem is he didn't have any children. So Sarah, when he's 86 years old, Sarah gets impatient. And she goes to Abraham and she says to him, go sleep with my slave girl so you can get a son. So he obliges, you know the story, and he goes and sleeps with Hagar and she conceives Ishmael. So he, verse 23, but he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to Abraham's flesh. That's that word sarks again, his self-effort. So he's 86, he's still virile, he's still fruitful, he can still father a child, but it was by self-effort. It was not by promise. But it goes on to say, and he who was born of the free woman through promise, who's it speaking of? Isaac, born of Sarah, because by now, Abraham is 99, he's impotent, he cannot father a child anymore, so God has to give it to him by promise. And I think there's a lesson for us. Whenever I get to this part, I think, you know, maybe sometimes God waits until we can't possibly 
in our own self-effort, force a promise to come to pass, and He closes every door but the one of faith. Verse 24, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants. So Paul is saying that these two ladies and their two sons represent law and grace, the old covenant and the new covenant. He says, the one from Mount Sinai, speaking of where the law was given, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. So Hagar, she's Egyptian. She's the Egyptian slave girl. So she represents the law here. You think Egypt, you think slavery, you think taskmaster. Law, taskmaster, slavery. And he goes on to say, and she corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Speaking of people under the law, even, even until today. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. Speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12, where we are now, which is the mother of us all. So Sarah, she represents grace. She is our mother. Abraham represents faith. He is our father. So who are our parents? Grace and faith, right? It's awesome. For it is written, so he's getting ready to quote Isaiah 54, 1 here, speaking of barrenness, relating it to Sarah. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who, do, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. So Hagar had stepped into the place of wife, taking Sarah's place, because she was barren for so long. And I think this is a message to me. If you're a person of grace, it may seem for a long time that you don't see any results. But we keep on keeping on rejoicing because grace will bear much more fruit than legalism ever could. For the ministry of condemnation had glory, but the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Verse 29, But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. If you go back to Genesis 21, you're going to see where Ishmael persecuted Isaac. But remember, Paul is using symbolism here. So he's not talking about a Middle Eastern war here, okay? He is communicating something. He is saying that the self-righteous legalists are always going to persecute the people of grace, the people who know who they are in Christ. Okay? I, I'm a witness to this. I have personally experienced this. They don't get it. They don't get grace. They need law to control, to, con to manipulate, and to intimidate. It comes in all sorts of ways that are subtle. Some are, nobody's running around saying you need to be circumcised. But they're saying, if you just do this one little thing, God will be pleased with you, and I'll be pleased with you, and you'll be accepted. It scares them when people are set free. All right, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Get rid of legalism. You cannot receive the abundant life that Jesus came to give if you think you have to earn it or deserve it. You have to receive it in utter humility as a free gift of God's grace. 
So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage, the yoke of the law. Now, the next verse, he's going he's gonna to speak of that, that, that specific piece of the law that they were dealing with at the time. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. In other words, if you adhere to the law for righteousness, the blood of Jesus will be worthless to you. If righteousness can be attained through the law, then Christ died in vain. Verse 3, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If you're going to go there, you got to go there all the way. And in verse 9, a little leaven, speaking of the law, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You put a little bit of law in with your grace. You know what you got? Law. Just a little bit. You put that side by side with James 2.10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one little point, he's guilty of all. You see, law in all its forms and grace are mutually exclusive. You can't mix them. I like the Passion Translation of Galatians 5.9. Don't you know that when you allow even a little lie into your heart, the lie of legalism, if you would just do this, you'll be accepted. And if you don't, you'll be condemned. It will permeate your entire belief system. The Old Covenant way of thinking was called the yoke of the commandments. That's what they called it. And that was a metaphor for this acceptance of the body of thought taught by the rabbis, taught, taught by the rabbis of the Mosaic Law. But Jesus came to bring a whole new way of thinking. And he mentioned a yoke. Do y'all remember that? He spoke of a yoke, and he was talking to people who were heavy laden under that yoke of the law when he said this Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest from all your striving. Take my yoke, my way of thinking upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My way of thinking is easy, and my burden is light. Now, his way of thinking is easy, but it might cost you everything, right? It's free, but it might cost you everything. Cost cost God everything, cost Him His Son. But how much does this world mean to you? I got to read this in the message because we love this translation of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Are you tired? Yeah. Are you worn out? Yeah. Burnt out on religion? Yeah. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And if that's our desire, we can accept nothing less than undiluted grace. Amen. Amen. Amen.